been six weeks since I've preached a sermon before a congregation. But let's pray as we will shortly turn to Psalm 23. God, Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you even for the two hymns we sang this morning, uh, which really express the truths of Psalm 23. And we thank you now for this opportunity to consider a psalm most beloved to all of us and also that will help us to prepare our hearts for the communion supper. We thank you, Lord God, we praise you and we look to you with humble trust uh, and affection for you, Lord, are our shepherd and we shall not want in Christ. We thank you in his name, amen. Well, there aren't many sermons that I've preached in the past that I could just that quickly remember the outline, but Psalm 23 is one of them. And let me say a few words about the significance of Psalm 23, because I know that all of you love the Psalms. That's one thing I know about everybody here who is a child of God. You love the Psalms. Uh, even often unbelievers love the Psalms because they express the deepest uh, feelings of the heart. But there is a class of psalms, as I'm sure you know, that is very special, and that is the Messianic class of psalms. And there are dozens of them. Uh, many of them are found just in a verse here or there, but there are certain of the psalms that are strategic in God's plan for the ages. And one of them is Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2 gives the history of the world in a nutshell, if, you want, if I might put it that way, the blueprint. I don't know if they use the word blueprint much anymore with the way technology has gone, but uh, if you're as old as me, blueprint is just a regular word. But we'll call it the pattern or the plan or the blueprint uh, for world history is actually seen in Psalm 2. When you come to Psalm 23, the pattern or the plan or the blueprint for one's personal history in Christ is seen in Psalm 23. And then there is one psalm that gives more of the history of Christ than any of the others, and that is Psalm 110. So you could call Psalm 110 a portrait of Christ's history. So I don't mean to fetter Psalm 23 with, a, with an outline. I think the outline that I'll share with you um, momentarily here is, it just flows right out of the psalm, so it's not like binding Scripture with a, with a, a human outline. Um, and Psalm 23 is free. It's free-moving. It's, it's, it, it expresses the sentiments of our heart, and um, it's artistic and all the rest. But it does have a certain structure that relates to this plan that I just mentioned. So I read from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is a new American Standard update that came out a few years ago. And I'll read now Psalm 23 once again. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies." You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, our God, for this very special and very precious psalm. 
and pray that as we consider its truths today, that you will help us to give thanks to you for all that you do for us as we live our lives in Christ and as we remember him in the communion supper this morning. We ask this for his glory's sake. Amen. So there are five things that I'd like to show you in the psalm. And the first, of course, is in verse 1, which we'll just call that the confession of the sheep. It's a confession of faith. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And a confession of faith is, is what saves us. And a confession of faith is what sanctifies us. And a confession of faith is what keeps us strong and gives us security. The Lord is my shepherd. Notice the personal nature of this. The Lord is my shepherd. He's not just a shepherd. He's my shepherd, and I shall not want. So that's the first thing we see here, the confession of the sheep. The second thing that we see in this psalm is the care of the shepherd, shifting now to the shepherd himself. You see the care of the shepherd in verses 2 through 3. And there you see that the, the way he cares for us is that he gives us rest, he gives us refreshment, restoration, and righteousness. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then when you come to verse 4, we'll call this the comfort of the sheep. In the presence of evil, verse 4, even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me for the, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. So picking up on that word in verse 4, the third line, comfort, we'll call this the comfort of the sheep. And then our fourth major consideration in this psalm is a very beautiful one. It's in verses 4, the last line of verse 4 through verse 6. And that is the contentment of the sheep. So you have the contentment of the sheep presented in five images. And we'll talk about those uh, when we come to that point. And we must add a fifth point to the psalm, of course, since it is a messianic psalm. And that fifth point is that is the Christ of the shepherd psalm, which turns us to John 10. So let's consider, first of all, the confession of the sheep to which I have already alluded. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I will ask you to turn to John 10 at the outset, and then we'll turn to it again at the end of the sermon, but it would be, would be lacking for us not to mention it now at the beginning, because, you see, when you read Psalm 23, you should say, Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not want. We... It's legitimate for us to do, and I think it's necessary. Jesus is my shepherd, for he is the one who is pictured in the psalm. But I'll read the first five verses of John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he brings all his own out, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they, they will never follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. These verses describe the work of the shepherd. And then Jesus explains to them, who did not understand, verse 6, what it means. And we'll come to that later. But John 10, verses 1 through 5, describes in a New Testament setting what Psalm 23 is describing in an Old Testament setting. 
In fact, Psalm 23 is depicting the experience of Old Testament believers with the Lord as their shepherd, with Christ in their vision, and so John 10 is picturing the fulfillment of this from a New Testament perspective with Christ having accomplished his work for us. So Psalm 23 and John 10 must always be read and considered together. So once again, the confession of the sheep. The confession of faith is everything in the Christian life. The confession of faith is what saves us. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the book of 1 John, where he's speaking about being deceived by the false uh, uh, false uh, prophets, uh, he says, he who confesses that Jesus Christ is the Christ, is born of God. Your confession of faith is everything. In fact, in John 15, where Jesus speaks about the pruning of his sheep, um, he speaks about those who profess him, who bear no fruit, who are cut off. And we all know that many people profess Christ, they confess Christ, but they do not have Christ, they do not possess Christ. And so it's a false profession and therefore a false confession of faith. But here is a true confession that the Lord is my shepherd. I have come into a relationship with him, a saving relationship with him in an Old Testament setting. Old Testament believers are saved in the same way as New Testament believers are saved, or I should say vice versa. We are saved in the same way that they experienced new life. They were regenerated and dwelt by the Spirit and all, all that, born again, all that it takes for a person to come out of darkness into light. But the Lord is my shepherd. I confess him, and I am saved. But this confession of faith sustains me. And you see that in the second line, it sustains me. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not want. Now, it's not just a person who says, well, I'm going to trust in Christ, and then I know that I'll never lack anything. No, it's more of a confession along the way. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a confession that I remind myself of in every situation in life where I am hard-pressed and afflicted and troubled and perplexed. In one sense, it's similar to verse 4, where he speaks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil, and so on. It's similar to that in that the confession describes our, the sustenance that we have as a result of possessing Christ. The Lord is my shepherd. It's personal. I shall not want. It's real, and it's continual, and it's life-sustaining, and it goes with me. It goes also with verse 6. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life. I shall not want. And in one sense, the, the, the psalm is an exposition of verse 1, as you can see. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So we see then, first of all, the confession of the sheep. Is this your confession this morning? Do you confess that Jesus is your shepherd, therefore your savior? And have you, you notice that, that verse 1 gives this sense that, yes, I have, I have committed my entire life to this shepherd. I have cast all my care upon him, therefore... I have already concluded that with Christ, I will never lack anything. Jesus said, I will never leave you. 
I will never leave you or forsake you. Is he your shepherd? You know, before you, there are many portions of God's word that unbelievers like and, and uh, use to comfort themselves, and yet without justification. Our sister spoke about knowing the time of her justification, and that's what it's all about, knowing that you're right with God, knowing that you've been justified by his grace. And so it, it's important to pause at verse 1 before you go on to apply the blessings of the remainder of the psalm to yourself. But first, secondly, then, we want to talk about verses 2 and 3, which is the care of the shepherd. Notice he goes right into that. I shall not want, and this is the reason why. First of all, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And naturally, this is a shepherd psalm. It's based upon David's experience with his own sheep. He was a shepherd, and God called him to shepherd his people, Israel. So David speaks as a shepherd, and many books have been written on Psalm 23, just from the shepherding perspective, a shepherd's view of Psalm 23. There are a number of books like that, old and modern. And that is a valid analogy, naturally, because that's what he's doing in verse 2. He is applying it to the godly one when when he makes these statements, but they are based upon what he does for the actual sheep. And that's what Jesus was talking about as well in in John 10, in the first five verses, where he doesn't say anything about himself in the first five verses of John 10. He's just talking about what shepherds do. But this is an exposition of that statement, I shall not want. First of all, notice that the shepherd gives the sheep rest. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Rest, and it's the it's the rest of nourishment, um, feeding. Secondly, he gives them refreshment. He leads me beside quiet waters, and the shepherd's goal is to do this for the sheep, lest they be troubled, so that their life, the a shepherd imagery or pastoral pastoral meaning like countryside, is very relaxing, isn't it? Well, we come from South Jersey. South Jersey is kind of a beautiful place, uh, but uh, not like here. And so my wife and I still are, are, are experience the awe of just about every time we go out, saying to one another, or I say it to myself as I drive around Lancaster County on my new job, uh, wow, this, this is beautiful. It couldn't get more beautiful than this, and then the next day it does. So that's kind of the idea. He leads me beside quiet waters is that in the Christian life, where there is trouble and turmoil from a Christian's perspective who sees the evil and knows it's evil and is troubled and perplexed by it or is touched by that evil, the shepherd brings the sheep into quiet waters, gives us rest and refreshment and also restoration. Notice he restores my soul. This is speaking about times in the Christian life where we we are either weakened or we have sinned or we have come into a, we and come into a period of repentance and need restoration or reformation. And so this is another blessing of the shepherd. He does this for us all the time, every day. And notice that every day idea is there in verse 6. 
Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life so that he does these things for me every day. Makes me lie down in green pastures so I can feed in his word. Leads me beside quiet water so I can be refreshed throughout life. Restores my soul when I personally go astray. And finally, guides me or leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so the care of the shepherd is all about righteousness, righteous living, uh, righteous image bearing, bearing the image of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The apostles called him the righteous one. They preached Christ as the righteous one to the unrighteous, to God's people who then had imputed the righteousness of God in Christ. And he guides me in the paths of righteousness. He guides me in the paths set out before me, gospel paths, Christian living, spirit indwelling. He guides me in those paths. I put myself in the way. He guides me in the paths for his name's sake so that he might receive the glory so that his gospel purposes may be fulfilled. And so we are cared for, the care of the shepherd, verses 2 and 3. I trust that you have known the sweetness of his care and have felt it deeply in your heart. Again, this is in the Songbook of Israel, the Psalter. It's poetry. It's a specific genre of of the Bible, which is given to us alongside of all the doctrine, which has its very special place and is extremely important. And one is not better than the other, but they balance each other out. The doctrine, the doctrinal portions, the doctrinal statements, the doctrinal formulae, and all the rest that we need to give us a solid foundation for faith. But we also need the emotion, the feeling, and the Psalms and all Hebrew poetry is given to us to fill that need in our lives. And so I'm sure that you have known the blessing of the care of the shepherd in your life. But notice there's also responsibility here as well. This is not something that he does merely for us. Notice, he makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me, restores me, guides me in the paths of righteousness. But, but it's not a situation where, well, we just let God do all of this. I'm sure you can see that this involves a great responsibility for us. If he makes me lie down in green pastures to feed me, then I must put myself in the place of being fed by God's word. If he leads me beside quiet waters, then I must put myself in a spirit of trust, which is one of the hardest things to do in this life, to trust in God. But I must put myself in a situation where I, I encourage myself to trust him. And waiting upon the Lord is another difficult thing to do. None of us likes to wait. But trusting in the Lord involves waiting upon the Lord to work in his providence and to trust that also goodness and loving kindness is pursuing me all the days of my life 
even when I may not be feeling it today. And guiding me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake isn't something that he alone does. He does it for us, but we work with him. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling as he is working in us. So if he's guiding me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, I must be responsible to guide my steps in the paths of righteousness every day. In the consciousness that he's caring for me, but I am one of his sheep. And I am not an, an animal type of sheep. I am a person made in his image. And so I take the psalm, I take the analogy up to its highest level, and it spells responsibility for me in order to receive the care of the shepherd. The this, this psalms say that he will not hear our prayers if we regard iniquity in our hearts. And so how can the Lord take care of us if we're careless about our Christian living? The third thing we see in this psalm, then, is in verses 3 and 4, or the first two, two, I'm sorry, verse 4. And I call this the comfort of the sheep. We could call it the, the uh, control of the shepherd. We could, we could call it that and maintain that. Uh, but I like the comfort of the sheep because of the word comfort. He's stressing the comfort here, notice, which makes sense because the darkness, which is described in verse 4, the first line, as a valley of the shadow of death, darkness brings fear, driving along a dark, unlit road, pitch dark, walking out into the pitch dark night, in a situation that may seem unsafe, is the picture here. Most specifically, the first line of verse 4 is speaking about approaching death, and that the darkness of that moment of knowing that your life is ebbing away from you and soon you will die. So comfort is the main idea, but... Discomfort has to do with evil. Evil, the second line, I fear no evil for you are with me, has to do with the first line, which is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Death is an evil. My wife and I attended a funeral uh, yesterday morning in Perkins PA of a woman who was a member of our church for many years, and um, the, her son gave an illustration of um, a pastor who approached a, a, graves, a, a grave and instead of casting his flower on the coffin, he crushed it and threw it on the coffin. And people around were kind of startled by this action and they asked him why he did that. And he said he did it because death is an evil and Christ has conquered death. So it was a way for him to express this hatred of death. And, and he made the point, the preacher made the point yesterday, that death is an evil. It was not God's original plan, as we might say it. And so here, death is an evil. This is the point, the first line and the second line. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of this evil of death, you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me in the shadow of death, at the time of death. Evil is present. 
And the providence of God sustains us to our dying day. Your rod and your staff. These are symbols of his, his, his control. The rod, the staff, were symbols of the shepherd's work with the actual sheep. Your rod and your staff, the symbols of your presence and your care, comfort me. And so we are comforted not only as we approach death, but we are comforted through moments of darkness, near-death experiences, you might say, um, and every approach of darkness in our lives. Some often believers are, I might say, tormented by dreams or seeming demonic activity in their lives, periods of darkness that come that seem unexplainable. And in situations like that, Psalm 23, and ver- like those, Psalm 23 and verse 4 comforts us greatly. And then the fourth point is verses, verse 4, verses 5 and 6. Excuse me, 5 and 6. Psalm 23, 5 and 6. And here I see five images of contentment. Pictures. The first one is feasting. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The second one is anointing. You have anointed my head with oil. The third one I'll call overflowing. My cup overflows. The fourth one is safekeeping. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me, or some versions say follow me, all the days of my life. Pursue is better. And finally, dwelling. I will dwell in the house of the Lord, Yahweh, or Jehovah, forever. The point is contentment. Each of these images speaks of contentment. Contentment is a, something we all need. Was it Thomas Watson who called it the art of contentment? The Puritan? I think it was. The art of contentment. Be content with what you have. If you have food and covering, be content. For we brought nothing into this world, we shall bring nothing out. And so contentment is a major theme of Scripture for God's people. But here it's presented in a very unique way through these pictures or images. Notice the the images in the shepherd psalm, the images do change. At verse 4, it changes drastically, you might say, from shepherding to hospitality. And I think the reason for that is, the change, is just that, in a way, David has shifted his focus here to describe contentment. And the first image that comes to his mind is being in the wilderness and being around all of his enemies and having a table prepared before him. Abraham had that experience, remember, when he came back from the, the, the war and, and Melchizedek, Melchizedek met him and brought out bread and wine. And so the first image of contentment is that of feasting or abundance. 
And we could look at so many passages, but we don't have the time to do that today, and it wouldn't really be necessary. It's enough for us to just have the picture there, which is that of feasting at a, 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 a lavish table of food presented to us, prepared specifically for us by a loving, gracious host. And But it speaks of abundance. The Lord's Supper is a table to which we come, and the Lord meant for that to be, although you just have this tiny little cup, and you have this tiny little piece of bread or wafer. It seems like so little, but the Lord's Supper is intended to express an abundance of provision for us in that small way. And God, of course, Christ designed the Lord's Supper for us that it wouldn't become this elaborate ritual. Uh, he knew that the tendency of our hearts would be to make this some big elaborate ritual as as uh, has become in many circles in church history. But the point is that even the Lord's Supper speaks to us of feasting, feasting on Christ, abundance, the abundance that Christ provides. I came that they might have life, he said, and have it more abundantly. And so we do have an abundant life in Christ. Secondly is that picture of anointing. You have anointed my head with oil. This is a rich theme in Scripture. It's based on the anointing of kings, prophets, priests in the Old Testament, but it, 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 it finds its fulfillment in Christ and also in believers. For when Christ began his public ministry, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit for power to describe, to declare that this Christ is set now to preach the gospel for 30 years, first 30 years of his life. He wasn't a preacher. He, he wasn't going around the countryside. He was living a godly life, to be sure. And uh, we can just think of the, the wonder of being a sinless man, working as he did. But when he went out to preach, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. So it finds its fulfillment in him. Prophets, priests, and kings find the fulfillment in him. He is the prophet, priest, and king of his people. But it also finds its fulfillment in us. The, 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 the best passage for that is, is in 1 John chapter 2. We have an anointing from the Holy One, and we all know it's the anointing of the Holy Spirit of Christ upon us. 1 John 2, 20 and 27. The Holy Spirit is given to us, just as it was given to him in the sense of empowerment at his baptism. Is given to us as well. You remember that in, the, in, the, uh, in God, Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus said, that if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? But in Luke's account, and I believe Jesus must have just said it both ways, he said, not give good gifts to his children, but your Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Indicating that the Holy Spirit is God's best gift. And the Holy Spirit, was he was referred to this morning, and one of the men mentioned the indwelling, of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we have an anointing, our head with oil, with the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, he speaks about overflowing. This is just a picture of abundance again. Overflowing, the abundance of grace. Paul speaks often in his letters about the abundance of grace flowing 
freely and liberally to the Gentiles, but it also flows freely and liberally to us. We have an abundance, overflowing of grace. And that certainly is one of the best pictures of contentment that there is. You're content because you have more than you need. Fourthly, he mentions safekeeping. Verse 6, line 1. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life. Again, it's in keeping with verse 4. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, looking at the end of the experience of life where you're facing death, verse 6 looks at life before that time and affirms that goodness and loving kindness follows me. It doesn't just follow me, it pursues me. It which goes with the restoration. It pursues me because he restores my soul. He always wants to bring me back. So goodness and loving kindness pursues me. It also speaks about God's providence, which cares for every detail of our lives. And in that sense, he pursues us. He takes care of all of our daily needs. He guides us in our smallest and shortest steps. And that speaks of safekeeping. I'm always safe because God's providential hand is guiding me, leading me, pursuing me, taking care of my every daily need. My wife and I have known that in all the years we've been married, but we've especially known that in the last few months in this big change in our lives. But then finally, you have dwelling. It's kind of a simple way of looking at life. And I've often reminded myself of it, which is another one of the reasons why Psalm 23 is so special to me, as I'm sure it is to you. But, you know, it's, it's that simple. My life is kind of simple. Your life as a child of God is kind of simple. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow you all the days of your life. And then after that, you'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And notice there's a continuum there. There's not like a, there's not a sharp break there. In, in the psalmist's mind, it's not a sharp break there. It's like the first line of verse 6 is heaven on earth. The second line is, you know, heaven forever. It's that kind of idea. That's the sense. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's one continuum. Which is one of the reasons why Christians shouldn't fear death. And why we, in one sense, should be always ready to go when the Lord calls us home. For none of us knows how long we will be on this earth. And how do you, how can we develop that, that strength? Well, perhaps this is one way to do it, is to follow the thought, the pattern, the thinking of David here, which presents a kind of simple view of life. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and then I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm I'm dwelling in the house of the Lord now. He spoke about that in other Psalms. It's one thing he desired from the Lord, and that will he seek to dwell in the house of the Lord. When? Now. And finally, point number five must be added, which is the Christ of the shepherd psalm. And here we turn in closing to John 10. 
the Christ of the Shepherd's Psalm. I mentioned before, and I'll mention again, that Psalm 23 is a picture of Old Testament salvation because you see that an Old Testament believer had all these blessings, not, not in the fullness that we have in Christ, and certainly not with the, uh, the, the, the aware, not with the accomplishment that we now have in Christ. It was all promise. In one sense, it took more faith for an Israelite to be saved than it does for us to be saved because it was all looking ahead to the promise. But Psalm 23 is speaking about Old Testament salvation, and John 10 is speaking about the fulfillment, which we would say is New Testament salvation. And as Jesus, after he presented the analogy of the good shepherd, and then declared himself in verse 9, I am the door, if anyone follows, enters through me, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. Now he's starting to apply it to himself, but when you come down to verse 14, he tells us how this is accomplished for us. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. There it is. I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep. Like, by the way, I have other sheep which are not from this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd, and that's where we fit in. For this reason, the Father loves me, because here it is again. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one takes it away from me, but from myself, I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. This is one of the clearest, there are several like this, one of the clearest expressions of Christ's understanding of his purpose for coming into the world, which was to die on the cross. And he states here in the clearest terms that this is all of his will because this is the Father's will and this is how we have him as our shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we